again for being here this morning. If we have not met, my name is David, uh, and I'd love to greet you after the service if you are a first-time guest or a returning guest. Also, if you have any questions about the life of our church, I'd love for you to stop by the Connecting Point, which is straight out the back. Uh, they'd love to help you in any way uh, that you may need that, so uh, feel free to stop by for that. If you have your Bible, I want to encourage you to turn to the Gospel of Luke chapter 5. Luke chapter 5. If you didn't bring your Bible, there is a blue Bible in the seat pocket in front of you. You can find Luke chapter 5 on page 1600 in the Bible that we have provided for you there. We are in the second week of this series, second week of the journey through the Gospel of Luke, uh, journey through the season of Lent. Uh, As you saw earlier, our our destination in this journey is not to a particular place, but rather to a particular person. We are moving through Luke's story of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus as we move through the season of Lent. Uh, And really, this, this series is about three things. Uh, we're, we're reading the story. So I hope uh, you already have a, a giant bookmark that we have provided for you. Uh, even if you have the largest Bible in the world, this will still stick out the top. But uh, this is all the readings that we are doing together through the Gospel of Luke over the course of the 40 days of Lent. Uh, if you are following along, you read Luke 3 on Monday. You read Luke 7, 1 through 17 yesterday. And we pick back up our readings uh, tomorrow. So we're reading the story together. Today, uh, you're going to have a chance to hear uh, me share with you about one of the particular texts that you already read this week. So uh, for those who are following along on Thursday, you read the the passage that we're going to look at today. And if you're a part of one of the small groups or Sunday school classes that is going through the video curriculum that we've put together, you're also sharing the story with one another, sharing your thoughts and your reflections on what you're reading and also hearing from others, their thoughts and their reflections. You'll be sharing uh, about a passage from Luke chapter 4, which again, you already read, but you'll have a chance to to share that with one another uh, this this week. So the whole idea is immersing ourselves in Luke's gospel, immersing ourselves so that we can perhaps see something that we haven't seen before, that we can understand something that maybe we, we hadn't quite comprehended before, so that we can respond to Jesus, maybe in a way you never have before, a deeper and more full way as we move through this season. Uh, that, which will culminate in Holy Week and as well uh, our Easter services, which you heard about on the 15th and 16th. Now, if you are doing the video stuff, uh, one of the things that I shared with you last week is that the story of Jesus is really best understood within the much larger story that we find in the Scriptures. And so in Luke 3, when you meet John the Baptist, the one who has come to prepare the way for Jesus, when you think about the much larger story, you realize that the one the people have been waiting for is one they've waited for hundreds of years to receive. So for centuries... For centuries, the people of Israel had hoped that a Messiah would come, a Savior, a King, someone who would come and set the world right again. Now, when you hear that phrase, set the world right again, I want you to understand that for the people who were waiting for a Messiah, the world really meant their world. Okay? So they were just like you and me. When we think about things getting better, when we think about things changing, when we think about the world moving in a better direction, we really first think about our world, don't we? 
I mean, we think about our needs and our desires, and we're generous. I mean, we're, we are very loving, gracious people, and so if other people's worlds are helped along the way, we're okay with that, right? I mean, that's good, but really we tend to think about our world and our needs and what we think needs to get better, and so it was with them. They had expectations, they had hopes, they had dreams, they'd been waiting again for centuries for the Messiah to come. And I want to start there to just remind you that Jesus came to a world, he entered a world that was full of expectations. He he presented himself as, as someone who they had hoped they would receive, and his coming was filled with lots and lots of expectations of what the Messiah would do and how the Messiah would do it. And and while Jesus entered a world full of expectations, what you will find as you continue through the gospel, again, we're just beginning, is that Jesus continually confounded those expectations as he clarified his calling from God. And this dynamic between these two ideas, that, that there were expectations for what Jesus would do, how he would act, how he would respond, and Jesus continually confounding those expectations, understanding this dynamic will help you greatly understand why people respond to Jesus the way that they do as you read the story. Because often what we find is Jesus not meeting the expectations of the world, the crowd, those who wanted their world to move in a particular way. Instead, Jesus confounding those expectations as he clarified for them what his real calling was, what his identity was. And that's what we're going to look at today as we turn to chapter 5 and we look at an episode there, again, that you've already read about. We're going to see the expectations that surrounded Jesus and the way in which he confounded those expectations. So Luke chapter 5, I'm going to read to you beginning in verse 27, but let me just tell you what's happened already in chapter 5. So chapter 5 begins with the calling of the first disciples. Uh, The first disciples are two sets of brothers, Simon, uh, also known as Peter, Simon and Andrew, James and John, the sons of Zebedee. So some of you know there's going to be 12 spots eventually, right? Jesus is filling out his team in the first uh, few verses of chapter 5. He gets four of them, Simon, Andrew, James and John, four fishermen who were there by the Sea of Galilee, all right? So when we, uh, that's followed by a couple of healings, and then we get to verse 27, and here's what happens there. After this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector by the name of Levi sitting at his tax booth. Now, by the way, Levi uh, in other gospels is referred to as Matthew. So, gospel of Matthew, here's the writer right there. Uh, Levi sitting at his tax booth, follow me, Jesus said to him, and Levi got up left everything and followed him. So, so far, again, we got 12 spots to fill. uh, And here in verse 27, number five is selected. Okay, this is the disciple draft of of the early uh, first century. Okay, so we got five people and, and all of them have left behind lives. They've left behind their, their livelihood, the, the, the careers that they had, the, the families that they have had in order to follow Jesus. And it's not really clear to us why they've made this radical decision. All we can assume is that there was something so compelling about the invitation 
that they decided to leave behind everything, take an incredible risk and follow this man who they didn't really yet know who he was or what he was all about. They leave behind everything and, and follow Jesus. They took a huge, huge risk. But let's flip that for a second. Let's think about this from the perspective of Jesus and look at the five people that he has selected so far. He's got seven spots left, but he's almost halfway through filling out his disciples. And these are the five that he has selected. And to think about this from the perspective of Jesus, I want you to imagine this this way. I want you to imagine that you have something that you have a burning desire to start, something you wanna uh, give birth to in, in a ministry, a business, a, a goal that you have, whatever it might be, you wanna do something something really big and you feel called and compelled to do that and up front you know you can't do it by yourself I mean you look at what it is and you just it it is beyond your skill set you don't have the talent to do it all you don't have the time the energy there are constraints in your life that leads you to know I'm going to need help I'm going to need help and if you were to ask the people around you hey give me some advice you know what you'd hear you'd hear you need some good people, right? I mean, whatever it is that you want to start, you're going to hear you need to surround yourself with good people. It's the same advice that we give to our kids, right? When we talk to our kids and we say, you need to choose your friends wisely. And sometimes they bring a friend home and we say, hey, you need to choose even more wisely than, you know, that we know that's an important thing. You may have heard this before. You're the average of the five people you spend the most time with. You heard that before? That's one of the things that we, t- that we tell our kids, that the people that you surround yourself are really important. We all know that. And, and that's what makes the selection of these five so interesting. Because it doesn't seem like Jesus is following that advice. I mean, when we start in chapter five, and we've got these, these first four guys, and here's what we know about Simon, Andrew, James, and John. These were hardworking, hardworking guys. I mean, to, to, to make a living as a fisherman was not an easy living. I mean, this, these were long hours. This was when you get home at the end of the day, you are bone tired. You've been out all day long. You're working with your hands. I mean, this is not an easy way to make a living. It's also not a way to accumulate great wealth. I mean, these are, these are guys who are scraping by. These are not the best of the best. These are the ones who are engaged in this craft because this is all that they knew how to do. I mean, it's appropriate to think of Simon, Andrew, James, and John. These are the working poor who were living in small villages surrounding the Sea of Galilee, just trying to make enough to to be able to take care of the needs that they have in their life. And they're not the best of the best. They're not the most educated. They're not the most advanced. These These are... Here's how you might think about it in today's terms. These are people who didn't finish high school. These are not the ones who have the advanced degrees. These are the, again, these are the working poor. But then you get, boy, then you get to verse 27, and it just gets really bad. I mean, really, really bad. Because there was, you may have heard this before, there was no one worse than a tax collector. Not like... IRS guy, you may not want to be his friend, like worst of the worst here, okay? This is like a, uh, these are people whose whole livelihood, according to all those around them, 
was about taking advantage of their neighbors. These were individuals who had gone to Rome. Remember, this is the, the people of Israel living under Roman occupation. They'd gone to Rome and they'd said, we want to be tax collectors in this particular area. And what Rome had done is Rome had estimated up front, we need about this much money from this area. And as soon as you collect that much, you give it back to us. And then anything else you collect, it's all yours. So we got hardworking guys, hardworking guys who were, who were just trying to make a living. And then we got, well, guy who had a lot of money who could pay up front. And, and, and then it was a way to get, to, to become quite wealthy. It was a very lucrative position, what, what Levi was doing. Now, many of you have heard before that tax collectors were those who collected taxes from their neighbors. And that's actually probably not true. What most historians believe is that a tax collector would, would pick a community that was maybe just down the road. <laughs> like, let's, let's go down to Midlothian and be the tax collector because fewer people know me there. It, this livelihood was so shameful that they usually went to a different community than their hometown to engage in this type of work. And so if you're just following along and you're keeping score... And you're thinking that Jesus needs, you need to, need to surround yourself with some good people. He's 0 for 5. And this guy, whew, this is, this is really bad. But Levi leaves everything. He follows him. Look at verse 29. In response to this, what does Levi do? Levi held a great banquet for Jesus at his house. And a large crowd of tax collectors and others were eating with them. Here's how you might understand verse 29. This is the only way the story could get worse, is for Levi to say, let's have a party. And who's he going to invite? The only people he knows are tax collectors. They're the only ones who will talk to him. And there's Jesus sharing a meal with the worst of the worst, which is why we shouldn't be surprised by what happens next in verse 30. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law who belong to their sect, complain to his disciples, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Now, remember, there's not 12 disciples at this point. There's five. They're probably not asking this question of Levi because he was one of the tax collectors. They're asking this question of Simon, Andrew, James, and John. And do you know what they probably said? We have no idea. We don't know what's going on. We just said yes, and now all of a sudden we're here at the home of a tax collector. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law come and ask this question. Now, if you're brand new, you may not know who these people are. So, so let me just ask you a question uh, real quick. How many of you think the Pharisees and the teachers of the law are the good guys? This is the interactive portion of the message. So anyone want to vote for good guys? Anybody? Anybody? Bad guys. How many of y'all think they're the bad guys? Okay. How many of you would like to abstain from voting this morning? Because you're, you're just too tired. There's, okay. So good guys. Anyone for good guys? Anybody? Bad guys? And abstentions. Abstentions. Yes. Please claim. Okay. Awesome. Yeah. Okay. So here, here, here's the answer. It's actually a trick question. Because the answer is really both. Now this surprises us. Again, if you've read the gospel uh, many times before, uh, you, you know these people as the adversaries of Jesus. And so you cannot help but say, well, these are the, these are the bad guys. But when you think about it from the perspective of the first century world, these were actually thought of as the good guys. And let me, let me show you why. 
in the Jewish mindset, their worldview, there's two categories of life. One category is what you might call holy or sacred or pure or good. This is the right. This is, this is clean. But then there's this other category that you might describe as profane, as unholy, as, 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 as not sacred, as unclean. And, and as a good Jew who is hoping that God will return and do for you what he has done for others in the past, free you from bondage, you want to make sure that everything you do in your life is in this category and not this category. And yet here's the problem. How do we know where we are between these two things? Well, that, uh, that's where the Pharisees come in. And here's what the Pharisees do. The Pharisees draw the line. The Pharisees interpret for the people the law to, to help them understand, well, over here is where the holy things are. This is what it means to live a clean, pure, right, good, everything uh, you can imagine uh, that, that would be associated with this word. That's how you live this way, and this is how you would be living in a way that is not good, profane, unholy, not sacred. And so the Pharisees were actually an incredibly popular, influential group among the people of Israel because they gave them something they wanted. They wanted to know, where's the line? They interpreted for them the law. These were the educated. These were the advanced. These were those who they were living the way that they felt like God had called them to live, and they were helping Israel do the same thing. And they were sharing their hope that if we together can simply live our lives in the right category, maybe, just maybe, God will do again what he has done for us in the past. So they drew the line. And again, that's why the question that we find them asking in verse 30, this is a very reasonable, logical question. When you think about how they understood how God had acted in their past and the expectations they had of how God would act in their future, they come to the disciples. They, they want to know, why in the world would you cross the line? Engaging activity that is obviously profane, unholy, unsacred, not clean. Why would you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners and again? Jesus does what he will continue to do over and over and over again in the Gospels. He confounds their expectations as he clarifies his call. Here's what he says. This is my calling. It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. That's why I'm here with them, sharing a meal and inviting them to follow me. If you were here in January, you know that we started this year by, we just, we were talking about this book and the importance of the Bible, the importance of reading the Bible, doing more than just coming to church and hearing about a particular passage of Scripture, but actually as a follower of Jesus, engaging in the daily practice of reading the Scriptures. We talked about this as the most powerful and yet underutilized resource in your life. 
Uh, and so our encouragement at the beginning of the year was to read the Bible, and, and, and then we get to Lent, and we are what are we doing? We are reading the Bible. I hope that coincidence isn't lost on anyone, okay? That, that was intentional, that, that we would move into this series where we would seek to do what we've talked about doing, to, to read the Bible together. Listen to what Hebrews says about why this is so important. Hebrews 4.12 says, the Word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. That when you invest in reading the scriptures, you're not only giving yourself the opportunity to, to allow God to reveal God's self to you, for Jesus, to, for you to see him and understand him and respond to him in a deeper way. You are giving God the opportunity to surprise you with those things that you didn't know before or understand before, those things that we delight in learning. But it is also a chance for God to reveal to you those things about yourself that you would probably rather not find out. Those things that rather than comforting us, they disturb us because they show us, they show us a picture of ourself. They judge the thoughts and attitudes of the heart in ways that sometimes are a bit uncomfortable. And what we see Jesus doing when he enters the scene and what we will see him doing continually as we follow along this journey, Jesus comes to disturb and make us uncomfortable, to judge the thoughts and attitudes of the heart, to confront us and to challenge us to wrestle, which is certainly what we see him doing here in Luke chapter 5, in asking Levi to be one of his disciples and and then going to the party and sharing time with them. No, notice this, Jesus reaches out to the very people we ourselves would avoid. Those people that we would easily just walk on past, that we would not see, we would not hear, we would, we would assume worst of the worst, don't have a chance. Jesus, Jesus goes to them. He goes to the tax collector. He, he shares a meal with him. Something I read this week said this about Levi. No one more dramatically represented the commitment Jesus had to the rejected than Levi. And so you cannot help but find yourself in the fifth chapter of Luke seeing what Jesus is doing and wrestling a bit with the question, who have I assumed is the rejected? Who, is the, who are those that I would easily avoid? That if I'm really serious about following Jesus, he would invite me not to avoid, but rather to engage, to embrace, and to invite them to live in a different way. Jesus reaches out to the very people we ourselves would avoid. He challenges the way we see others, but he also challenges the way we see ourselves. And when you think about how you see yourself, there's, there's two ways that I think we often get this wrong. And what's interesting is that we both do both of these things. We all do both of these things. Uh, we swing back and forth between the two. Here, here's what they are. We either see ourselves as the righteous who have no sickness, or we sometimes see ourselves as the sick who have no hope of getting well. We, we, we think to ourselves, well, we, we're doing good. 
We don't, we don't need any help. That's the irony of what Jesus says, right? He says, I've not come for the healthy. You might as well have said, because none of you are. <laughs> You're all sick. You're all broken. You all need help. There's no healthy. There's only the sick. There's only those who are in need of healing and, and wholeness that only Jesus can give. Sometimes we forget that that we ourselves have work to do, that we ourselves need to, again, open ourselves back up to what Jesus would do in our life. Sometimes in our own stubbornness, we, you may have found this at work in your life before, I know I've had it in my life, that when there is a sin in my life that I have not repented of or I have not confronted, guess what I don't want to do? I find myself struggling just to sit down and read because I know what I'm going to find there. I'm going to find that spirit that says, stop it, stop it. There is a sickness that you need to, you need to face. But sometimes we, we're like those tax collectors. And while we celebrate God's grace and we see it happening in other people's lives and we say, that is so good for them, we're not quite sure that includes us. Or that Jesus really has the capacity to heal the sickness that infects our soul. Or would even be interested in doing that. Sometimes we feel like imposters. Because we're not quite sure if this, is, if this is the place for us. If this is really for us as well. And here in the fifth chapter, very, again, very early in the journey, Jesus reminds us that both of these are wrong. Both of these are destructive and dangerous. And he comes to confront them both and to remind us that he has come not for those who assume they are healthy or righteous, but for those who are willing to come to the doctor and to say, I need some help. I need something that I cannot do for myself. And so as we just begin the journey with many, many weeks to go, I hope you'll think about your own expectations of Jesus and what he will do, what he has come uh, as, as the Messiah to, to do for you and to do for the world. To again, maybe see something that you haven't seen before, to know something you haven't known before, to respond to him in a way that maybe you haven't before. To know that he comes not just for you, but he comes for everyone. To invite them into a new way of life. The best of the best and the worst of the worst and all those in between. Let us pray together. Lord Jesus, today we give you thanks that you have called us to be your disciples. We receive, Lord, the honor of that invitation. And we are thankful, Lord, that you have, that you have claimed us as worthy of receiving it from you. We, Lord, know our own faults and failures. And even, Lord, when we 
avoid that truth, it's, it's still lurking there in the back of our mind and our heart. And so, Lord, for some of us, perhaps the next step is to, is to open back up this word and to confront that part of ourself that maybe we've been avoiding, we don't want to see. But for some, Lord, maybe it's just hearing again your invitation and knowing that those words have been shared specifically with us to enter into a new way of life. Leaving behind everything, that's, that's also the hard part, Lord. So give us courage as we continue this journey together. Help us to see things that we haven't seen before, to know you in a way that we haven't fully known you before, and to respond to your invitation to be your people in your world in new and more profound ways as we share this journey together. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.